thank you. Thank you so much to Clock Shop, to everybody involved, to California State Parks, and to Bill for, yeah, and for everyone for organizing this. And I want to echo what Leonardo said if anyone has any questions. But, and also, if there's something, uh, if while we're talking, if you want to get up and go look at the sculpture, I, I want to encourage people to do that because it is meant to be sort of experiential in that sense. But uh, my name is Ignacio. I'm a sculptor. And yeah, and I usually work with sort of research-based projects, history. Um, so this is really interesting for me to be kind of like pushed in the role of an artist, not an artist that does historical research. I want to echo uh, Ignacio's thanks to everybody. Um, it's just so beautiful to be here and to be outside with you all. So I'm Bill Deverell. I'm a history professor, and I run the Institute on California in the West between USC and the Huntington Library, and I'm a proud clock shop board member. Um, so um, I guess I'll just begin with an opening question for you, Ignacio. Uh, just tell us about it. Where did the idea come from? And then when you began to do the research, what were you trying to figure out? So... Yeah, so um, I do like to work, um, you know, what you would term site specifically, and this site just was so rich in history. Um, and one of the things that that really kind of was the jumping off point for the project was its history as a the first transcontinental uh, train depot uh, for the Southern Pacific, and so that seemed like such a big huge part of this of LA's history um and uh, and then the San Hamadere fragment um sort of running parallel to it and so those two elements and the fact that that formally they uh are linear in 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 nature uh kind of got got the gears turning so as a sculpture that was the kind of basis was that it, these things are linear and they move things and their motion, they move people and material. Yeah, I think um, sometimes we forget how heavily railroaded uh, Southern California is. Um, and we're at the heart of it right here, um, near the LA River, which provided those uh, flat banks for light rail and others. And then running right through here, the big old vestigial train lines uh, that supplied tourists, venture capital, commodities going this way and that way. So I think we, you know, we can hear the railroad and we'll hear the light rail go by and there's another one over here, but I think we forget how heavily railroaded this area is. And then just infrastructurally, I'm fascinated by the linear parallel notions and concepts here because we've got the railroad and we've got the fresh water supply. So the other thing is just being on this landscape, I think we also sometimes forget because we can see downtown the center of downtown quite a ways away, that's, a, that's an evolution. That's an early 20th century movement. This area near here, of course, proximate to the plaza, plaza this used to be the heart of things. Um, and we've lost a little touch with that, which this park can restore, I think. So how about the building materials? Yeah, um, so again, that's kind of what I was fascinated with, exactly what you're saying, that how, how big of an influence industry had on on shaping the landscape and 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 that it still does sort of hold such a big sway on you know what the what LA looks like and is like um, but so the materials are either some of them are borrowed from the site leftovers from the you know the rail yard there's the railroad ties the railroad track and so they're from here and they're they'll come back to you know being in a pile here somewhere 
Um, the other materials are either, again, meant to refer to the river, to the San Hamadere, to the, um, and the other materials, there's this other sort of more, the more sculptural elements are the uh, either cement, brick, or carved wood. And as we were talking with Bill earlier, in some way, those are meant to uh, refer to contemporary building materials and the sort of development that you see happening around the park in, in Chinatown, but also, uh, again, to the to the cementing of the river and to the Sanja Madre, which is bricked over. Um, yeah, so those are the kind of like material elements. They're either, they all kind of refer to the history of the site in one way or another. Yeah, it's really intricate and rich. I, uh, Ignacio and I were also speaking before um, you all arrived that the linearity of the sculpture, um, if you were to point, if it were pointing uh, northeast or so, the San Gabriel Mission's just eight miles away. So this was, you know, this kind of transit in here out to the fields and the agricultural productivity of the Elysian Gap, and then out towards mission proper and mission landscapes, that was the agricultural past. Uh, and once the turn of the century comes and the industrial era really takes off and pushes LA that way, uh, and the river is decentered by way of the arrival of the aqueduct in 1913, this landscape becomes this kind of, I wouldn't say vestigial exactly, but it, you know, it's decentered from the consciousness of people in LA. And then as the West Side grows up and as Hollywood takes off and the movie industry takes off, things go that way and that way. But I love the fact that we're right here with all these layers and layers of history. Do you wanna talk about the, the four pieces, the four, the four uh, construct, you yeah. know, sculpture pieces? So, Those are so cool. Yeah, so again, most of the pieces are uh, borrowed or just straight up industrial materials. Everything is about eight feet to 10 feet long, and that's just kind of what materials come in. Those are the lengths that materials come in um, and for construction. And, uh, and then again, the four elements that I kind of, that are more sculptural that I made myself are uh, in some way a reference to, or more of an art historical reference to Brancusi's Endless Column in a way, and obvious, which obviously is vertical. Um, and I kind of wanted to to play with that and you know topple it over in a way and um, but I was also interested in the fact that they were kind of happening simul sort of simultaneously to the development happening here in LA uh, so the you know the train industry was kind of like uh, modernity sort of exemplified and uh, Brancusi's endless column was just the you know exemplified modernism in a way. So that's kind of the starting off point for that connection. And just the fact that it could be, could go on forever and ever. Yeah. It's this, the, the railroadification raises a, the acoustic issue too. We often think, I'll say it just for myself, I often fall um, or are prone to that acoustic sensibility that when a train goes by in the distance, it sounds nostalgic to me. You know, that lonesome whistle blow, et cetera, that kind of language. The transcontinental arrival is 1876. That sound was not anything approaching nostalgia for people here. That was modern. Yeah. That was the future. That was exciting. That was industrial might. So we've, you know, we've pushed the acoustic sensibility into wistfulness. Mm -hmm. For them, it's 
the future. Yeah, I was interested in that idea that, yeah, these things meant progress. And then what, what does progress mean now? And it seems to mean development in terms of construction. And that's what it feels like, at least living in L.A. now. Um, and yeah, and I was, you know, in reading your book, too, I was interested in um, it, it kind of gave context to all of the research I was doing, because as, a, as I was saying, I uh, the Transcontinental Railroad was bringing people, had a vest, vested interest in, in bringing people from the East Coast, uh, specifically white people. And so your research also, I just found it fascinating in terms of that, that you know, that's not accidental, that, that there was a vested reason for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just curious about the fabrication here, too, though. Do yeah. you... When you work on this, do you make a model? Like, a, are there little ones, or you just start working with the big pieces? Uh, I did make a model, um, but in the end, you know, in the end, it, it, yeah, I made a model just to kind of like to see what it was like. Um, but yeah, mostly, it just, I, I, mostly, it's just straight to working with the big pieces. And the 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 references are um, aside from the art historical Brancusi. Mm -hmm. The references are uh, railroads, construction, building trades, irrigation, steel fabrication. Yeah, mostly the the what the river, then uh, sort of engineering of the river is kind of what I thought about it as. Uh, the more research I did into this area, the the more it seemed like, uh, you know, it seems obvious to us that the that the river has been paved and made linear and that seems like a that's industrial it's an it's an industry in a way in the same way that the railroad industry is so it's basically those two things and then sort of more sort of contemporaneously it'd be the the construction industry it's those are the sort of references um materially speaking yeah i don't know that anyone's ever looked at this i think if you look at the railroad the, the big transcontinentals and la has three of them uh, by the end of the 19th century um, that then lead to the eventual construction of Union Station because the idea was there had to be a union of the three con transcontinentals so that the consumer could go to one place and make a market choice about which one to ride. I would imagine the civil engineering of the railroads, which is at the highest quality of civil engineering in the country at that point, they're probably learning some things from in the river paving from the railroad civil engineering just in terms of answering to topography and all that because the the paving of the river you know it takes the 20 the entire basically the entire 20th century to do it um it's really uh, a huge huge project and now of course our sensibility is entirely different or largely different what can we do different how can we work with the river uh instead of against it um and that's going to take I don't know if it's going to take a century. It's going to take a long time. So just raising the attention of this kind of neighborhood by way of site-specific artworks is very exciting, I think. So congratulations. Thank you. It's yeah. really wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity, especially at this time. Obviously, this is, you know, as an artist, what more could you ask for? An outdoor sculpture that, that people could actually go visit. Um, but also just as somebody that's interested in, in working with a specific context, you know, it's it's you it's hard to be to find those those opportunities. So. How do you title your works? Um, 
It depends. I mean, sometimes they like the while you're working on them, they kind of it kind of something starts to sort of ring in your head. And um, this this project is titled Progression Without End. So in a way, it's a reference to Brancusi's. Uh, it's commonly known as as Endless Column, but it's actually the more uh, accurate translation of it from French would be. Uh, column without end. So on the one hand, it's a reference to that. On the other hand, it's a this idea of that it would get the idea of progress in your mind, and and it's just almost descriptive of the project that it's a actual progression that uh, of of materials. So it's just um, they could be endlessly sort of rearranged, and you know this hypothetically this sculpture could could go on forever. Um, if if there was enough room for it. Yeah, and it certainly calls up the linear horizontality of growth here in the basin until we've started to infill. And once you can lift buildings up higher with steel, things are so stretched out and horizontal because the basin's so huge, but it took all that infrastructure to do it. Um, you know, not to mention automobility, which is going to come right mm -hmm. right after this this era conjures up. Leonardo, do you want to add, do you have questions for Ignacio? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this district, so wide, you know, either side of the river, and this kind of wide industrial district where the the industrial fabric is still, of course, all over here. That I think we could probably find some late nineteenth-century buildings in there. I'm pretty sure we could. Um, immensely polyglot, working class. Um, after 1910 and the revolution in Mexico, increasingly welcoming uh, refugees from Mexico and laborers who come to work on this kind of landscape here. Um, but this area would have had people from all over the world in it, for sure. Um, and then stretching out towards the, what's now the uh, Arts District. Uh, and the railroad, is, the railroad is beckoning tourists, but also the transcontinentals, they want settlers mm -hmm. because they want that commodity market, and they're also probably selling land as, as late as the first half of the 20th century. And they're beckoning to cold Midwesterners. They're beckoning to Chicagoans and Iowans who are freezing in January. And they're showing this off with photography and art. And the racial presumptions are pretty stark. Um, the the notion is in the early 20th century that this is going to be a capital of anglo-saxon civilization and they will self-consciously without without self-consciousness they will call it that um and what they what those figures end up being very surprised about is that the population is so increasingly and obviously diverse and so they try to build controls into that that we're doing our best to break down because they're still with us. I mean, no, yeah, that's some of the same research that I sort of stumbled upon was that the again, the Southern Pacific Railroad at the time was they sold one way tickets, colonial uh, uh, settler tickets is what they called them. And yeah, so they had a vested interest in bringing people here for freight, uh, I mean, as passengers and then also to provide them with supplies. So. So they're uh, having people settle here as our customers. Yeah. And, and then the, also selling land, like you said. Yeah. And the people who come here, you know, they have lives filled with all the complexity of any of our lives. But a lot of them, uh, the vast majority of them are giddy. 
They, they can't believe they've landed in a place like this. And it's, it's the weather, but it's not just the weather. It's the opportunity. It's the oil industry. It's the film industry. It's the arrival of fame and glamour into American popular culture, youth and beauty, eventually the beach. They're just stunned by the fact that they could be here having grown up, let's say, in Des Moines. You know, nothing against Des Moines, but they, they can't believe they've landed here. Yeah. California's Mexico until 1848, the end of the Mexican War, which by treaty and session lops off a third to a half of northern Mexico, which becomes our Southwest, California included. There is a large Latino population, but it exponentially grows after 1910. Yes, but sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. So uh, or, or at least sparsely populated until this railroad takeoff period of the, about 1885 or so. And then Southern California begins to grow in leaps and bounds in urban and suburban qualities, both from 1885 till yesterday. I mean, it just rockets. 1850, uh, less than 10,000 people here. Um, a great many of mestizo and indigenous descent, but also a smattering, if you carry the 1850s forward, a smattering of Eastern Europeans, French, um, New England uh, Protestants who come because they sense an opportunity here. And then they marry, the wealthy ones marry into the elite California Mexican families uh, and they marry those daughters and then they get the land. Um, but polyglot, you know, fa fairly diverse. The indigenous population has been struck low by disease because of the mission system, and then their demography will fall off the table during the American period because that's the real era of brutal violence towards indigenous people. They, the, the assumption is that they will disappear off history stage, and of course they don't. I mean, indigenous California is still a prominent feature of our demography, but they, the assumption on the part of largely whites, is that they'll go away. Leonardo, do you want to ask that question? So Leonardo's asked about uh, the shape and linearity of the sculpture and uh, wondering about, with the rise of modernism, with the rise of LA, what's the labor story underpinning that? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, could this be pointing, either metaphorically or literally, south to Southern Hemisphere or south of California and the labor magnet that this world became. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like a, a it's a, I think it's almost more of like a humanist read than the way I think about the work. I think um, it's easier for me to almost think about it in terms of industry uh, just because it's uh, easier to, uh, to critique it. Um, so of course labor and and people are involved in in industry, but so it's almost more about just the outsized sort of influence that that industry has on again on your life. It's almost like a like gravity or something. Um, so again, it's shaped the even just the shape of this park is still determined by this thing that happened a hundred years ago. Um, I th yeah, that's kind of my view on it. It's uh, it's it's about how industry kind of like impacts humanity um but the the more humanist 
aspect to me that we haven't talked about is more uh, sort of in terms of contemporary history is the creation of the park and the fact that this park almost wasn't and it was almost again an industrial park so it was going to be all warehouses and the sort of community organizing that that went into to fighting for it to not be that so maybe they didn't get everything that they wanted but at least they didn't get warehouses um so in a way the the sculpture is hopefully meant to invoke that thing of just like sort of toppling over old industry and also this almost like fictitious parallel history that almost happened yeah i agree i think Anytime we we save open space in Southern California, alongside just the pure beauty of being here and relaxing and all, we should be jumping up and down. I think anytime we can save spaces, and this is a big one, this is a really big one. Um. <laughs> yes. We should introduce Julia Meltzer the founder of Clock Shop and our co-host for the event today. Other questions? That moment of railroad gunk that goes into the soil matches the moment of starting to pave the LA River and more or less. And it does fit a cultural predisposition back then that we can push nature around. We're in control of nature. Southern California has been gifted this remarkable landscape and climate, and we're in charge of it. And we've learned now, a century later, that nature's really elastic, and you can push only so far, and nature will slap back. And so we're trying to, I think, slowly, I think we're trying to do better than our forebears. The question is one I've never gotten before. If you were God uh, and you had a century from now forward, what would this area do and look like? You take that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I have absolutely no idea how to answer that. Only because, again, I feel like most of my uh, work or the way I think is is responsive almost. It's just like, uh, again, just seeing like the vestigial sort of like the the evidence of this again past industry even if it's not there anymore so it's um it's just so hard to imagine a world where these things aren't kind of always with you or always influencing the future um uh yeah i don't know but again more green space i mean or or like what i've been thinking about this place as again as opposed to industry as sort of like non-productive space like that's not tied to it's not privatized and it's not tied to actual production that maybe it's just for for nothing <laughs> i i don't know how to answer that i think it's a good question but um my pointy headed response would be we would all have a greater curiosity of the multiple histories of this place mm -hmm. and if we understood i mean i find the whole movement across the country about civic memory and statuary and all absolutely fascinating and I completely disagree with some of the commentary that um, that were that the the impulse is to do away with history. I think actually it's all about more history and getting different histories out there. And I think the more we have that recognition, to me as a humanist, I mean I'm, you know, I, 
I've got a quirky position in the society just as an academic, to me, that would be productive. Mm -hmm. Hi, Crystal. Good. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. There wasn't an acknowledgement at this event. Um, that's a mistake, I guess. I think I agree with you. There's a move now. The city of Los Angeles is going to adopt sometime in the early new year a land acknowledgement policy, which is a lot of thought is being put into it. Um, from my, This is entirely personal. From my perspective, the land acknowledgement process, A, it has to have indigenous people absolutely involved of differing opinions, which is not unusual. And B, the acknowledgement's just one step. It can be, a, if it's done well and done with commitment, it can be powerful. But the best ones I've seen that are generally not in the academic world, but out in the public sphere, are acknowledgement. And while I have your attention about acknowledging the pain and heartache of this space, here's some things you can do about it. Here's a, here's a, a, a donation that can be made to this entity or that. Here's a political action card that can be signed. So, you know, action that associates with acknowledgement. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And um, it, it's my project or the research that I did, um, for whatever reason, I, I kind of never sort of found out too much about that. I know, I know that there was villages nearby, near the river. And everything I, I, I kept sort of like coming to this wall that the Southern Pacific bought this land from a private, from a woman. And, uh, and then that's kind of as far back as I could go. That's kind of where my, in terms of the information that I found. Um, and so that disconnect, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not, yeah, that dis, there's a disconnect there of like, of missing information, or at least uh, that I found accessible. There's an indigenous village near here as late as the very end of the 19th century, which seems so late, but it's, I've seen it on a map and I know they know what they're talking about. It's, you know, the, over here by the river is where one of the bigger indigenous villages was when the Portola expedition came right through here. But there's another one upriver, you know, up, up towards the five and the Elysian Gap. There's another one that's, I think, still around really late. But we don't know enough about it. Mm. Yeah, I know that video. Teresa's talking about a video that shows the depopulation of the countryside of indigenous people into the missions. Um, and probably this church down here at the plaza later but certainly San Gabriel and San Fernando. And it's astonishing because each little dot, the amount of research this group did is uh, awesome. Each little dot is a person that they have tracked by way of mission. I mean, one thing the Franciscans did really well was keep records. I mean, they're an enlightenment record keeping entity. So when we have those, so you can track that depopulation of the indigenous people into the mission um, over the course of a generation or so. Um, if anybody, I can't remember how you find it, but if anybody wants to see that thing, you can email me at the USC History Department and I'll send you the link. 
there's a historical dimension too. Like, you know, just over here, um, a quarter mile or so is a public housing project from 1940, something like that. And then there was a big one planned for Chavez Ravine that didn't go anywhere because people thought it was socialism. And by and large, then city of Los Angeles got out of what's called social housing and then aimed more towards public private partnerships or trying to create incentives for the private market to build affordable housing. And I, it's failed. So, I mean, we need so much more housing, so much more housing. And the city, you know, the history of public housing in the United States is like this, you know, obviously, because it can also bring as many bad effects as good. But boy, do I think we better re-examine it. I mean, that's my opinion. But um, I agree with Julia that kind of hawk-like attention upon the costs to neighborhoods or spaces when certain kinds of development are proposed or pushed through or rendered impenetrable to the public voice. Absolutely agree with that. And I think we need a lot more housing. I mean, we don't disagree. Yeah, let me let me repeat the question, um, and then you want to try that. You know, yeah, sure. So yeah. Uh, Edgar asks about how do you, on the one hand, maintain your fascination and exhilaration about maybe the form or the engineering or the intricacy of the research of infrastructural impositions on the landscape like the Zanjas or like the railroad or the bridges. How do you, at the one hand, feel that or indulge that, but also keep close a critical edge about what did that all mean, in particular, as Edgar mentioned, for people of color, where that infrastructure can be an act of colonial uh, imposition? How do you keep those two things alive? Is that right? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, um, and. It's a complicated question, and I, I grapple with it too. I think I, I I certainly hope that it doesn't that the work doesn't come across as a a celebration of of these things. Even though, yeah, like you're saying, maybe when you're doing the research, you you it's it's like it's hard not to get wrapped up in it in this way of like in maybe the lore of it. Um, but yeah, and from my perspective, it's I've done a lot of projects in the past that also deal with industry, uh, particularly copper mining in Chile. And, um, and again, I think my interest is in just what a, what a like outsized influence these things have on us and, and on the landscape and how it still does. Um, and I hope that the critique sort of comes through in, in when I, when I think about, um, how it relates to sort of art historical movements of, and for example, I don't know, I think about again, modernism and, and sort of almost like uh, toppling it over in a way. And also the way that maybe other movements like minimalism that, that first started to acknowledge um, uh, sort of gravity or, or like this uh, opposing verticality in sculpture. Um, and land art, and so those those kinds of things. When I when I start to think about those histories, and then also about art, and and how those two things can come, sort of come together. Um, and 
again, so form, so so it's just like, a, it's a sculptural way to to engage with the subject for me was to think about it in terms of of lines and linearity and uh, and thinking about movement and how these things move and so hopefully as a, as a viewer my my hope is that you could you uh, think about those things by walking and and moving the, uh, while you're looking and then conversely that you could like sit down and don't move uh, hopefully. Hopefully, somewhere there, there's a resistance to the just, I don't know, celebration of, of industry, of, of progress. of um, That's certainly kind of what the work is about, is about trying to, or the fact that, that progress, so the idea that, that progress is thought of as linear, and that obviously it's it's not. It's, it's it, That's just like a, a fallacy, right? That it's always linear, that it's always better, that it's... I think it's a great question too, and I don't I don't know that I have an answer for it. Um, just to say, in, in my own research and writing, maintain that allergy to nostalgia. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're allergic to nostalgia, if you tell yourself to be allergic to nostalgia, then you don't fall into these traps, mm -hmm. which is it was so much better back then. You know, you read the I read the papers uh, ten days ago. Country's never been more divided. Well. There was a civil war. So, I mean, divisiveness, yes, absolutely. But I, I so if you figure it out, I'd love to talk to you. Do you want to repeat it? Yeah, I, the question was the um, about the, again, formal aspects of the sculpture, about the segments, the, um, yeah, from my perspective, it's almost like a, like a sampler of, of things that they, that can be, uh, uh again the materials either um relate to the to the LA river to the uh sanha system like uh sort of different i don't think about it as um chronological but that hopefully it would kind of uh reflect on different uh time periods and so there's the you know different uses of the river both like as a bringing water out of the river and and in and as a dumping ground and so going both ways um and then of course there's the materials uh that are original to the site that are uh um railroad ties and the the railroad track and then the the objects that i made myself so the there's just this kind of uh repetition of materials and and variation in in how they're uh sort of place together that can kind of hopefully in your mind it could kind of keep on going i don't know if that answers the question enough but um yeah i mean it's just sort of a way of of joining them in a way that's sort of ad hoc in a way so again hopefully that it would uh, both um uh conjure something that can go on forever but also something that's kind of in pieces or or um sort of ruins of some sort or uh i ran into uh, somebody that was sitting on the sculpture not, not somebody that i knew but i somebody that i engaged in conversation with and and they asked me if there was construction happening on on the site so you know that, and i like that comment in a way that the, 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 these objects are 
they're stock materials they're the stock lengths i didn't really cut them to lengths they're, these are the this is how these materials come in industrially um yeah oscar y yeah so question is there, is there some significance to the shape of the pieces that make up the work yeah so the four the four objects that are carved or they're either carved cast or or constructed are are constructed in a sort of referencing Brancusi's endless column and which is made up of these modules of that are these sort of diamond shapes um and that he, it's a it's a work that he made many many versions of different versions of um some of them outdoors usually or always vertically um and so uh, that work was made again in a modular fashion that could be sort of made at different scales, different lengths, different uh, he and uh, in different materials, and uh, and again many different versions. But the idea is that it could just keep going on forever and ever, which is also again hopefully ties in conceptually to the to the rest of the work. Um, yeah, the question was how do, how does it generally relate to to the my work as an artist or or past work um um yeah i mean i can most of my work is concerned with sculpture or uh and yeah it, the end i, I don't want to say end result but the the sort of conclusion of like i was talking with bill um i also the the work sort of usually comes about by doing research and and thinking about a place and um, and the conclusion or the the outcome is usually is is always sculptural um, so that's it's a way to pro and it's usually uh, invested in yeah in like material history and so it's a way of like of dealing with that history of, and thinking about it through your through manipulating materials and so again the the past work that i mentioned th that i was most recently working on for a long period of time was uh, dealing with the copper mining industry in chile and um so that work was very specifically sort of working with copper but um one of the things that i really enjoyed about this project was just sort of n uh not getting sort of so mat materially specific or or so yeah tied into a specific material.